In recent decades, it's become common to believe that birth rates should go down for economic and ecological reasons. But we're overpopulated. People might even be a blight on the planet. Of course, since you've tuned into Grace Archie with Jim Babka, you're expecting to hear something unique and insightful on this subject. I'm your host, Bill Protzman, here on the AHO Radio Network, with thanks to the Zero Aggression Project.org for sponsoring Grace Archie. Let's go a little deeper. Grace involves the recognition of the created value of other persons. We study economics to understand how people can flourish. Indeed, the study of economics is required by the fact that we exist in a world where resources are always limited. So what do we do? To answer that question, we brought in an expert, right, Jim? That's right. I just uh, was recently in Michigan at an event called Acton University put on by the Acton Institute. Uh, named for the famous Lord Acton, who is most famous for saying that power tends to corrupt, and uh, uh, had had a chance to uh, sit through their conferences and their sessions, and and had the pleasure of meeting uh, the gentleman who'll be joining us today. Is this in any way related to abortion, Jim? Yes, we did just have the Roe v. Wade decision. I have to pick it up. <laughs> yeah, and we, you know, we've got to start to talk. You know, as as you know, we're we're approaching this more from a cultural perspective, right? Not whether or not the, the one side, the pro-choice or the pro-life side were right at the court level or in uh, government or law, but how can you have a, a, a well, let's call it a pro-life mentality? What is the way that you could go about culturally uh, thinking about the issue of what, uh, in this case, what is the value of a human life? Valuing human life, sure. Makes sense. Well, we've got an expert on board. <laughs> let's yes. bring him on. Let's bring yeah, him let's on. bring him on. Dr. Stephen Barrows is the Chief Operating Officer at the Acton Institute. He's the former Provost and Dean of Faculty at Aquinas College, where he was also a tenured Associate Professor of Economics. Dr. Barrows is a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy, go Air Force, part of my family, <laughs> who then served 21 years in the Air Force, retiring 2013 with rank Lieutenant Colonel. He holds bachelor's and bachelor's degrees in economics from Pennsylvania State University and a doctorate in economics from Auburn University. Steve, welcome to Grace Archie. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Bill, and thanks, Jim. So, Steve, we met last week for the first time, and right away, you know, I, we knew this decision was coming down. I knew that I wanted to talk to you uh, because you gave a talk on population growth. So, in sum, in general, population growth a good thing, or should we be, are we overpopulated? Just, just a real simple start. Sure. The real thumbnail sketch is that population growth is a good thing because human beings are a good thing. And in fact, from an economic standpoint, human beings are the ultimate resource, as a famous economist, Julian Simon, once titled one of his books. So yes, I've uh, come to the conclusion, based on both empirical as well as just the inherent dignity of the person, that uh, population growth is good. It's good both for humanity and for the economy. Okay. So I want to set the stage for everybody who is watching us today. We are basically going to have an economic discussion. While we have values that we're bringing to the table, this we're going to approach this subject from a scientific basis, and we have a PhD in economics who's taught the subject extensively for years, and I, I got to sit in a conversation where you you uh, covered this, and so I was very moved personally. A lot of people who are going to be in my audience are going to be interested in Austrian economics, and that's where we're. Uh, I kind of want to set the stage though uh, before we get into the, some of those Austrian economists. Um, where does this debate begin? Sure. Well, you know, many people will trace the origin of the debate over population growth to a political economist, an Anglican pastor uh, named Thomas Robert Malthus. 
who wrote a famous essay on the principle of population back in the late 18th century, went through subsequent editions. And there he basically asserted that, uh, that the future was not particularly good because the uh, ability of the earth to sustain population growth uh, could not keep up. And so he asserted that, uh, that the sustenance or the agricultural production of the land would grow at an arithmetic rate while the population itself would grow at a geometric rate, which did not leave uh, good prospects for humanity's uh, well-being and survival. And are there any kind of checks on population growth? I mean, is population growth, is, is he right? Did we get a point where we've, we're going to be in trouble? So there's, a, there's different aspects to this. The first thing is that there's nothing inherently wrong with his assertion of really is just the ap application of what we would call the law of diminishing returns. So individuals will begin to cultivate the land that is most uh, fruitful and uh, has the highest yields and agricultural output. And eventually you continue to employ less fertile uh, regions of the, of the land. And then eventually you get to the point where you don't have land that's particularly fertile at all for, for agricultural production. But there are, uh, so, so, from the law of diminishing returns, there's nothing inherently flawed with, uh, Malthus, or with Malthus's idea. But in the end, he said that there's two dimensions that the population would be checked. One is that inherent famine that would be produced by lack of food, okay? Uh, that, that would be referred to as the positive check. And the other is the preventive check, which is basically acts of the human will uh, to prevent uh, you know, excessive uh, birth rates. So that could be either what he would call vice, the use of birth control, or just self-restraint by delaying marriage and presumably not procreating outside of marriage. So he looked at this in different perspectives. And of course, the more pessimistic conclusion was that individuals are not engaged in self-control and that there would end up being these outside influences, starvation, famine, war, plagues, et cetera, that would check the population. And and Malthus is at what time? What what time frame in history? So this is the late uh, 18th century, early 19th century, uh, when when he lived, and he for, published his first edition in 1798. And of course, you know there were episodes then where there would be poverty, and he he observed uh, within the the. Uh, England at the time that there were a number of people that would be, uh, you know, populating uh, urban densely populated areas and there would be starvation and there would be death and disease. And of course, it was it was in many respects for some people a miserable existence. And so uh, that's where he uh, observed and then wrote down his observations. So we've, we, now we've established where this is the beginning or the root of this argument. Obviously, it's going to come up in a couple other settings before we get sure. to today. Yeah. Uh, because obviously the environment, for example, is a big question for a lot of people. But uh, let's get into uh, one of the things I appreciate was you did get into the Austrian econ uh, economists. Um, perhaps say a word about that. What is an Austrian economist for those maybe that don't know? Sure. Well, the Austrian economists are a school of thought that really trace their name back to uh, Vienna, where a number of Austrians had uh, had come up with ideas and a way of approaching uh, economics methodologically. They really emphasize the individual and human action as the way of assessing uh, uh, economic questions and determining uh, facts and truths of, of economics, as opposed to doing some sort of a historical empirical approach. And so really the Austrian school begins in the, roughly the late 19th century. And so I've identified some that I would call proto-Austrians yes. because they weren't really originating uh, from, the, from the country of Austria. Uh, and so there's a number of individuals who would be in the same spirit of what Austrian economists really emphasizing the free volition of an individual uh, for human progress and human action in, in under conditions of scarcity. And let's, let's dig right into them. Uh, Jean Baptiste Say, uh, famous for Say's Law. Uh, he, yes. Is he responding to Malthus directly or, or indirectly? And, and what did he have to say on this subject? 
So yeah, Jean-Baptiste Say did respond both directly and indirectly. He wrote a book called Letters to Malthus, and then also wrote a number of works, including treatise on political economy. And so he wanted to interact, and many of these individuals back in those days did interact direct correspondence with each other. And so in response to Malthus's essay, he, he of course acknowledged that there is a sense in which Malthus is right. Again, the diminishing uh, law of diminishing returns. But one of the things he really emphasized that Malthus overlooked is that human beings aren't just like animals, right? Individuals are unique. They have uh, a will and reason. And so they can actually make choices. And the superiority of human reason to overcome their difficult circumstances is one thing that, uh, that he said that Malthus had underestimated. And then that brings us to Bastiat, Frederick Bastiat. Yes, Frederick Bastiat, also a terrific proto-Austrian uh, economist, you might say, who wrote a number of satires. He was very uh, lucid in his writing. He wrote a book called, or an essay called The Candlemaker's Petition, which is a great talk about free trade uh, in a satire in that regard. But he, he also had addressed Malthus and, and had pointed out similar to what Jean-Baptiste Say had said, that Malthus uh, does point out some very interesting truisms about diminishing returns, but again, underestimated human rationality and also underestimated the, the, the fact that as you get more individuals together, you actually expand the opportunities for trade and the division of labor. And this is one thing I think Malthus really underestimated. On the one hand, we think of population, population density as being a negative thing, that there's not enough resources to go around and that it just exacerbates the conditions of scarcity. But what it really does, it also, at the same time, enhances the division of labor and the ability to use uh, unique gifts and talents across individuals. So he had emphasized this, that Malthus did not sufficiently take that into account. You know, it's funny, you're bringing this up right now. I'm going to uh, just say that Andrew Yang was, and I'm going to get to meet him, yes. I, I believe, in a couple of weeks. Oh, terrific. When he was running for president of the United States, was suggesting that one of the reasons we were going to need a universal basic income is that we were going to run out of jobs jobs would actually disappear. Not just, we don't have enough, it's not that we don't have enough resources to feed people. It's that jobs themselves are going to disappear. And, and I like to point out, because I'm, I've been in the nonprofit space running websites all this time, that a guy could have run an entire C3 or C4 organization, a nonprofit organization from his garage, right? Or his basement, right? On his own uh, uh, PC. And that today such a thing would be impossible because all of the things that are involved in producing a website mm -hmm. these days are highly specialized. New jobs and new opportunities have been created as the technologies expanded. It's that ingenuity already beginning to come into play that uh, that you're referencing, Bastiat. You know, talking about how we can all specialize. Absolutely, and you know, I'm sure Andrew Yang is also concerned, as you mentioned, with the technology and uh, advances in capital uh, formation. Which, both in both cases, whether it be technology or or physical capital, they are both. Uh, substitutes and complements for labor. And so while you might have some technology and some uh, capital stock growth uh, uh, replace jobs at the same time as you mentioned, they also create new ones as well. Debate doesn't stop there. I can't pronounce the next economist that you introduced in the talk, uh, the first generation uh, I know who he is, but I can't pronounce the name correctly. I'm going to let you Yes, know. yes. So, and I probably will butcher it as well. The uh, <laughs> a German pronunciation, Eugen von Bombawerk. And in uh, capital and interests, he had a great theory about the roundaboutness of production and how it is that capital grows and how the interest rate is used to regulate the growth of capital. And so if you think in terms of what a producer does, especially back in his era, you know, producers are going to have to have workers to produce the product. And at the same time, they're going to invest in capital and more efficient mechanisms of production. 
Well, economists had typically asserted that there was this so-called subsistence fund or wages fund, where you would have to, of course, have basically payroll and be able to meet payroll to be able to pay your workers and keep them sustained so they can work on the job uh, until the final product is produced and put uh, out there for sale. Well, as you have this more roundabout method of production, where you take and invest in capital so that you can build up a factory or do these other kinds of things that make you more efficient in your production process, you're going to have to be able to maintain those workers until you get the final product produced, which may take several months down the road. And of course, if you don't pay the workers, they won't have the sustenance to survive. Well, effectively, he said that, that the population growth would in fact be regulated in part by the interest rate, that the interest rate effectively rations through time and that the producers are going to have to account for the time it's going to take to get the end product sold in the marketplace and be able to regulate how much they're able to set aside for their workers to keep them productive as well. So oftentimes you don't think about population growth in terms of the time value of money, but in some rudimentary way, Bombavrik emphasized this, that this is another price in the marketplace that would actually help people make choices that will regulate the population growth rate. Okay. So this is basically feeding them before sales occur. That's right. That's right. Okay. You know, factories do have to maintain payroll as it were. And even if it takes a very long time, and as of course today, you would think in terms of deep research and development projects and that they're still going to have to maintain a workforce in the midst of that. And this is all part of their calculus and whether or not it's profitable to, to pursue those advances in capital and technology. So just just to make sure that the audience is following along, if you've got a higher interest rate, lower population, then is that is that what you're basically suggesting would be happening or kind of describe that connection here? Sure. So the interest rate, the higher the the, the interest rate, that, that would convey that you have lots of people that want that, that they really demand things today. They have very, very short time preferences as opposed to a lower interest rate, which would convey that there, you have an abundance of savings, that people are generally patient. And so depending upon the individual time preferences and what individuals are willing to save or invest, you would have a reciprocal response from those who are investing in their production processes. And that also then would be used to regulate how much you have set aside for workers and their subsistence. And there's one more proto-Austrian to get into the mix, uh, Frederick Wieser. Yes. So Wieser also uh, wrote a book called Social Economics, and he didn't address it as extensively as some of these other economists. It could be because now we're moving on into the later part of the 19th century. And in fact, you did see these leaps in agricultural production. So some of the empirical observations that Malthus might have maybe were not as urgent in the latter part of the 19th century. But nevertheless, Wieser did uh, point out that you do have uh, diminishing returns to agricultural production, like you would expect from an economic law but that there are leaps in progress. And that's another thing that all of these economists had emphasized. The human ingenuity will find new ways to take land that was previously less fruitful and find ways to make it more cultivatable, have higher yields. And that's what was happening in the latter part of the 19th century when Wieser was writing. And, and you know, there, there used to be the old saying, buy land, they're not making any more of it. And I can't help noticing that we just went through a pandemic, right? Yes. And suddenly land isn't what it was in, in one respect. I mean, people are staying home. You're in your office today, but you know, a lot of people are working remotely That's uh, right. that weren't doing so before. So it, we keep finding new, we built high rises early in the 20th century. We keep finding ways to make sure that there's more land even. Absolutely. 
yes, ways that we can use land that we never thought about before. And, uh, you know, I like to think of, of course, this is something we've also talked about at Acton University was Hong Kong, which is, as, as land is not particularly fruitful. It has a great, you know, harbor, but other than that, no natural resources to speak of. And yet it has historically been one of the more prosperous cities in the country or in the, in the globe. But it's teeming with the resource we care the most about today, which is people. Bingo. Exactly. Uh, so then, you know, I had not heard of Visser, but, uh, you know, I'm actually, I, I kind of know a little bit about that field, but I had not heard of him before your talk, but the next two guys that we're going to talk about, I definitely had heard of, uh, first was Ludwig von Mises. Yes. Yes. So von Mises and human action and another, uh, other of his writings, he had emphasized and interacted with Malthus and really emphasized some of the similar themes that we saw in say and Bastiat. Of course, Mises really emphasizes human rationality, uh, that individuals by their very action are seeking to improve their condition. And there's no reason why we shouldn't think that they would do the very same things with respect uh, to fertility and the choices they make with regard to fertility. One of the things, though, that I think Mises was emphasizing that the others did not was the idea of the connection between socialism and population control. And so if you think of socialism and controlling the means of production, the ultimate means of production is the human person himself. And so if you're going to try to control capital, there's no way that you can control capital without controlling the population. And that would entail not only you know the day-to-day -day workers, but also the procreation rate of the workers themselves. And so he was very pessimistic about a socialist uh, regime implementing population control measures. Foreshadowing, folks, we're going to be talking about a case where that's happening. You probably can anticipate where it is, but uh, one more Austrian economist before we uh, leave this uh, segment of the conversation, Murray Rothbard. Yes, yes. So Murray Rothbard has some very entertaining writing. Of course, he's a, such a scholar as well. And, and one of the things that he pointed out was that, that there really is ambiguity in some of the claims that are made by population uh, control advocates. And so the, one of the things he pointed out that I thought was brilliant is that you know, population overpopulation and underpopulation, ask somebody exactly what that means and how to measure it. Because you take one region, like we mentioned Hong Kong or a place like Singapore, which is highly densely populated and yet is one of the most high standards of living in the globe. And then you might have another place, right, which is also densely populated. Maybe it's a city in India or some other region. And it, it of course, doesn't have as high of a standard of living. So you can't really make population density the identifying mark of overpopulation. And so he challenges those who assert that there is such a thing as overpopulation to just give a precise definition of what that means, and none of them really can. Um, the other thing that Rothbard had pointed out is that uh, over the concept of optimum population, you know, what's the carrying capacity of the earth? Well, that's going to be constantly changing, okay, because there's so many other factors, our state of knowledge, our technology, our creativity, that is going to, you know, change what that potential optimum is at one point in time. So really, because that's always changing, there really is no sense in even speaking in terms of a so-called optimum population of the earth. So that brings us to another uh, field of economics, which had to do with an, a very famous bet that was placed. And the yes. two parties in this were Julian Simon and Paul Ehrlich. Um, first, tell us a little bit about who each of these men were, and then, yes. then we'll, go, we'll break it. We'll get into the rest of it. So it's interesting in terms of the modern population control movement. I can't think of any other episode that brought attention to that movement and made it an issue than Paul Ehrlich's famous book, The Population Bomb, which he published back in 1968. 
Now, Paul Ehrlich was an, is an entomologist. He's, he's still alive. I believe he's 90 years old. He's at Stanford University, probably an emeritus status, but um, he made- when you, his when, when, you and I, when you and I met last week, I immediately flipped open Wikipedia to confirm. He was alive last week. So oh, good. <laughs> he, is, he is still alive. <laughs> okay. Yes. So, and you know, I can say he'd been very active. I don't know how active he is today, but he, you know, he really took this, uh, this book published in 68 and then really went on the camp campaign trail. I mean, he was on Johnny Carson. Uh, he was, you know, took, took to the press and, and really it, it frightened a lot of people. Now, you know, contextually, I suppose there were some reasons for that because there were episodes back in the fifties and sixties where there were uh, localized famines and some concern that individuals would be facing that the very things that Malthus had had predicted. Um, so he had he had asserted that this is you know he had said that made the statement that the battle to feed humanity is over. Okay, so it's over. He thought that there was really no hope that we were facing inevitable starvation and famine. But there was another individual, and this time an economist, a University of Chicago uh, business economist, who initially was, was also skeptical about population growth. But as he began to examine the long-term empirical data, he came to the opposite conclusion. And that individual's name was Julian Simon. So they eventually started to go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and Simon would challenge Ehrlich and vice versa. And it got to the point where they ultimately had a, had a bet. So they made a bet. And, and so I want to talk about what that bet was, and I want to follow it up with another question. I just want to give you advance warning. There was something that I didn't know about this bet, uh, but the bet was a, about whether or not scarcity was going to be a problem. And, the, and who comes up with the with the, the the terms of the bet so that so that they had a way to kind of measure it? Because I love doing this approach with people when they I like doing this with conspiracy theories. So if somebody comes to me with a conspiracy theory, I say, let's great. Let's quantify that. We'll place a bet on sure. whether your version of the apocalypse is about to happen. So uh, this is brilliant. How did they, what is the bet? How do they quantify it? Sure. So the bet, um, and let's go back to the word used, scarcity, which of course is the fundamental focus of economists. And for an ecologist, scarcity is also the concern because it goes back to Malthus's assertion that we aren't going to be able to have enough resources to sustain humanity. So scarcity simply comes down to what are the demand on resources and what is the supply? We know that the earth itself in terms of material resources is fixed. And so from Ehrlich's standpoint, if the population continues to grow, the demand on the fixed material resources of Earth is going to continue to increase. When that happens, from economics, as demand increases, if you have a fixed supply, you end up having uh, prices go up. Well, Simon said, well, okay, this is true insofar as it goes, but you're not accounting for discovery of new resources that are here to, you know, not yet discovered the creativity of individuals to substitute from one resource to another as the price rises, you're gonna substitute away from the more expensive resource. And there's other economic dimensions that causes human behavior to change. And so he suggested to Ehrlich that, that the economic forces would cause human behavior and choices to change in such a way that rather than having prices increase as population grows, you in fact are gonna see the ingenuity of humanity caused them to fall. <laughs> so that was a pretty bold bet. Um, mm -hmm. And so what he suggested to Ehrlich is, look, let's not take a look at some, some things out there that could have whimsical demand. Let's go to the very heart of the resources, some very natural resources. I wish I could remember which five they were, but they were basically you know, minerals like copper and other kinds of fundamental inputs to production. And he said, you pick the five. Let's take the prices as they were in 1980. Let's create a price index out of those five resources. And let's wait 10 years. According to your uh, assertions, uh, Paul, Ehrlich, uh, the price of that index should rise. 
And under my belief, I think it will fall because I think human ingenuity, the economic forces of substitution effect and so forth will overcome the, uh, the demand pressures from a growing population. So they place that bet. And so let's, let's get, yes. let's, let's yep. reveal, let's open the envelope who won. Yes. So, so Julian Simon won the bet and I think it was a thousand dollar bet as I recall. And, uh, and, and well, at least the index was valued at, at a thousand, a thousand dollars at the time and whichever way the, the index moved the, the loser, the bet would have to pay the difference. <laughs> I think that's how it actually, uh, uh, rolled out. But the bottom line is Julian Simon won the bet. Now I, I will say that he was partly fortunate because inflation globally was pretty high in 1980 and central banks got it under control, relatively speaking, by 1990. He wouldn't have always won the bet over a 10-year period, but his point was made. You can't just simply assert that population growth is bad for the planet and is going to cause us to run out of resources. So, you know, when we have a speaker session at Act and You, I'm just going to give you a little bit of feedback on the event itself. Yes, yes, please. One person at a time can ask can ask the question and there's a limited amount of time. Nobody wants to dominate that. I don't want to dominate that. <laughs> uh, this was the moment for me because I was aware of this story. I knew this story. But you learn stories almost in like their their mythical level, right? I mean, it's it in in my, in the version of the event that I had learned first learned, Julian Simon just cleaned Paul Ehrlich's clock and completely put him to shame. When you actually put the helpful uh, caveat, you steel man, which is something we've talked about on the show as opposed to straw manning, you're steel manning here. We want to give you credit for that grace point. When <laughs> you when you do that yeah, and tell us the truth, you're saying that it's possible that this bet could have gone another direction. I I, I and I'm assuming. I'm, please correct me. This is the question I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Is this part of why Paul Ehrlich? never changed his mind because even though Paul Ehrlich lost the bet, he has stuck with this view right up until 2022 that we know that, that we know of. You know, I suppose it's probably a factor, you know, in the end, he could have said, well, you were just, the timing was good for you. You were lucky, or maybe it was those five particular resources that they had chosen. Uh, but I think if you take a look at the longer macroeconomic global picture, there's no way around what Julian Simon is showing and, and asserting is that as you have population growth, we continually see increases in the standard of living. And, uh, and that's something that I don't think Paul Ehrlich has an answer for. You know, it's almost like, oh, it will eventually happen. We'll completely outstrip our, you know, human, the, the earth's resources, but it's just, it's not happening. Uh, I do know, I do not remember the sources because it's been a number of years since I've first heard the story, but I do know that if the basket of goods have been arranged differently, there are several different versions of that basket where uh, Julian Simon still would have won the bet. Um, that there was yes. also, there was a degree to which the, the, the commodities that Eric had chosen were the ones that were going to make him potentially look the best. And if other baskets had been chosen, uh, Julian would have won by a wider margin. You know, I, I'm not surprised. And frankly, if I had been uh, Paul Ehrlich, I would have tried to uh, identify those resources for which there were almost no known substitutes, right? You can conceive of certain precious metal, metals perhaps being able to substitute for one another in a production process or whatever the case may be. And I don't know if he deliberately went into the bet doing that, but, you know, potentially you could. You could try to find something. There's really no known, you know, material substitute for this, in which case he would have had a better chance of winning. But I got to give you still got to give both men credit for for putting their their views to such a test, right? For the public to be able to see. Yes, absolutely. In fact, the the account of the whole story and the history behind this debate is is uh, recorded in Mark Saban's book, The Bet. 
And uh, it's just a terrific book that talks about that whole era of history and how these ecologists on the one hand and economists on the other hand were effectively battling over the idea of whether or not population growth was good, bad, or, or neither. And by the way, I gotta, I can't recommend reading Paul Ehrlich. He's dismally boring and bad to read. <laughs> but I can recommend Julian Simon. He, his cheerfulness, he was a very optimistic, upbeat, fun guy, comes out in his communication style. He's, he's, he's just a lot of fun. Yes. Norman Borlaug. I, this, this is a name. I just said Norman Borlaug, and almost nobody knows who we're talking about. And, you know, we have holidays, President's Day, for example, right? We got to remember these arcane guys that, you know, had the, we had the misfortune of having them in the Oval Office, right? <laughs> I, I'm, this is a guy that to me should be like, every school child should know this person's name. Not only is he important to this discussion, but he's literally, I mean, he's literally important to, to a, a huge wave of progress that humanity's experiencing right now. Please talk about uh, Norm Borlaug. Yes, absolutely. So Norman Borlaug did win the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970. And really what his claim to fame is, is he essentially inaugurated the so-called Green Revolution. So this is a great example of where the Austrians asserted that human ingenuity will find ways to deal with relatively infertile land or other things that are preventing agricultural yields from increasing and using ingenuity to modify the circumstances so that you can get higher yields. And he did that with wheat varieties. He experimented with all sorts of hybrid wheat varieties in Mexico. I think he came up with over 40 of them. Um, he did lots of experiments, almost made Mexico self-sufficient in the wheat production, carried those technologies around the globe to Pakistan, to India, and others, and was able to find for different agricultural environments a version of hybrid wheat that could resist blight or drought or other kinds of uh, you know insects and other things that would destroy the crops. And so as you do these kinds of experiments, you find out that the most important resource, which is really infinite, is the human mind. There's no stopping what kind of ingenuity you can apply to the fixed resources of the earth that can improve the human condition. And Steve, I just I want to make sure people understand how significant this is. Uh, talk for just a moment, please, about the condition of food supply uh, on our planet, like what, what, how, and hunger. Yes, yes. So whether it be malnutrition in places like India or Pakistan, uh, whether it be just, uh, you know, malnutrition led to outright starvation, or even just all sorts of diseases, you know, lack of certain vitamins in a nutritional diet that would create all sorts of problems for individuals, well, here back then that you would have pockets. And of course, today you still have pockets of hunger and, and, and possibly famine. Now, the causes of that are you know, multifactorial. It's, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily because the land itself is insufficient. It could be because the government itself is using it as a weapon against various subpopulations within their country. That has happened as well uh, throughout history. But here you have a situation where in the 1950s and 60s, there was significant con concern that there would be uh, significant pockets of starvation around the globe. And seeing this and responding to it in a very ambitious and humanitarian way, and Norman Borlaug said, look, I think I've come up with some solutions to your problems that will help you feed your own people. And so you can see, you know, across the planet, there's been this kind of, you know, curve. There's, you could look at it in a graph where, you know, we're dealing with hunger, we're getting better and better at it. Then there's a sudden turn upwards. It starts happening, I don't know what, 30, 35 years ago. And then in the last several years, it's like a hockey stick. I mean, it's just Absolutely. straight up. Absolutely. The hockey stick of you know, per capita income or however you want to measure it in terms of food production, uh, you see a, a massive increase. And, and that's where we're overcoming the law of diminishing returns because our ingenuity is causing these 
these shifts in the curve, as it were, so you have the hockey stick effect. Okay. However, I mean, this is all great news. I'm glad that you've been able to have more people. You figured out where to put them. You figured out how to feed them. You <laughs> right. figured out how to give them give them jobs. But Steve, they're a blight on the planet. They produce an awful lot of garbage. Um, they're just, I mean, just we've got an environmental environmental concerns that we need to be addressing right now. Um, what is your first response to that? So my first response is the environmental concerns are not going to be solved by uh, the fish of the ocean or the animals roaming the earth. It's actually going to be human beings that are going to solve the problems. And by the way, those problems, of course, in some cases are caused by human activity. I don't think we can deny that that's the case. But in the end, individuals are the ones that actually figure out ways to clean up the environment. I will also add that many economists will refer to uh, a clean environment as a so-called luxury good, which is to say this, not that we shouldn't be good stewards of the earth, but if you have a list of a hierarchy of needs for humanity, the first thing you're going to be concerned with is making sure that people have adequate sustenance, adequate shelter, you know, adequate standard of living. And then once you've achieved some basic standard of living, then you can say, oh, you know what? Now we really need to focus on the next hierarchy of needs, which is making sure our planet is nice and clean and so forth. Now, again, not to diminish the inherent goodness of a clean planet, but there is a certain priority that occurs. And you see that in countries like, you know, China has first had to deal with their, uh, you know, their population and making sure that they didn't have mass starvation in perpetuity, though they had episodes of it. And now they're turning the corner and making sure they go back and addressing some of the environmental problems they have. There's a trend towards uh, minimalization, right? We, mm. We've got, uh, we've, so this is obviously the big example, right? Uh, got my yes. phone, right? Yep. Are we producing as much garbage? Do we have the ability to do things? Can we make less into more? Absolutely. In fact, that's the beauty of human ingenuity. And uh, this is what we call the process of dematerialization. And there's a great book out there uh, by Andrew McAfee, where he talks about this, especially in the United States, our technology has advanced so much that we are now finding that it takes less resources to achieve economic growth. In fact, he, he uses the phrase, we've actually decoupled resource usage from economic growth. You know, we used to think you have to have more inputs to get more output, but now we're actually finding that's not always the case. And as you held up the smartphone, uh, there's a great uh, photo out there, I think, produced by the Cato Institute that shows the evolution of the smartphone and then what items that were typically on a desk 30 or 40 years ago are now found in a single phone. Well, that's dematerialization. You no longer have to use resources for a paper calendar or for a second phone on your desk or for you know a big monitor. You can do so much simply from a phone that will fit in your pocket. And we find this in, in other applications as well. And you mentioned at the beginning of the program, people working offsite, right? Well, we can have conversations and meetings that don't require us physically getting in a vehicle and going to a certain location. We can do this over video connection. And that's another example of dematerialization. So it's pretty exciting to see what human ingenuity can do that actually lowers the pressure on the resources that this planet has. I was uh, perusing your bookstore at Acton U and I, I gave in to temptation because that's my <laughs> way. And I did buy a couple of books and bring them home. Uh, I kept my budget down. I only got two, but uh, my wife has made very, very clear. She's uh, she likes to be kind of minimalized, right? Not have all the clutter. She sees all my bookshelves, which by the way, anybody has got a big book collection. Nobody wants to move if they've got one of those, right? You That's want to stay true. in that home forever. Uh, 
she has said to me, she said, I love you, dear, but uh, the day you pass before the, before the sun sets, all your books will be on the curb, right? Because it, it, it's a lot of clutter, but I have a Kindle now, right? Yes. And I can buy my books there. There's another place, you know, you can, the examples start to abound when you begin to think about this issue. That's right. That's right. I, you know, I lived in an era where you'd go down and, you know, get a VHS tape from a blockbuster, right? And now my kids, they wouldn't even know what a VHS tape looks like, right? <laughs> they just, hey, dad, what are we going to stream tonight? So it's great. <laughs> another example, right? <laughs> so uh, you did cover, and I want to make sure that everybody's aware of this. We're going to move through this part, next part real quickly, that uh, the media has even acknowledged this. And this is a significant thing because we're talking about a debate when we're talking about Paul Ehrlich which is the most recent incarnation of that debate yes. um, here, at least here in the West. Right. When we're talking about that debate, uh, you're talking about a debate that's basically as old as I am, right? We're right. talking about a debate that was occurring in the 60s and seventies. And, and, uh, and I mean, I can remember, you know, people advocating have fewer children, right? Yes. I mean, this was, this was, you know, uh, keep the population even. So two parents should only have two children or maybe even one, if you really wanted to give back uh, to the, to the environment, but the New York times, you know, headline, the unrealized horrors of the population explosion. Of course, we're yes. having this conversation 45, 50 years later, retro report, the population bomb. Uh, they began to explain, Hey, look, everything didn't turn out the way uh, Ehrlich and others were saying the wall street journal uh, demographic destiny, 2050. They're saying that the population actually isn't uh, we're actually in a position where the population uh, not, will not grow fast enough. So there's been kind of this reversal or awakening. And it's important to me, one of the things that, uh, that I want to bring through the show or help people understand is that there are these heuristics or these uh, uh, principles or concepts, right, that can be applied to various situations that help you when the news media is telling you right now, hey, this is the apocalypse of which you, you, you should be scared, that we actually can return to some principles, we can recognize that these debates are not brand new. I mean, we started off talking about Malthus, and there was a response almost immediately. And a couple hundred years later, we've got Ehrlich, and there's another response almost immediately. These things almost run in cycles. And if That's you can right. start to recognize that, you, you, you can pick up on those patterns. That's exactly right. And I do hope that those are a couple of indications where people are having second thoughts about this. I mean, you know, first, it is true, the population horrors did not materialize. And, uh, and so the, right off the bat, you have to ask yourself on an empirical basis whether or not they should be concerned about continual population growth. And I do think there is now a shift. And hopefully it becomes uh, ubiquitous where people realize that this is not anything to be concerned about, which, which, by the way, doesn't mean there aren't going to be challenges, right? There will always be challenges of population growth, just like any individual family might find it challenging to have another child for various reasons. But, uh, but the human person is more valuable than the challenge that lays before you. I want, to, I want to come back to China in a second. I want to first look at the entire globe, if we could. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to definitely come back to China because you can't have this conversation without discussing them. And we foreshadowed them a bit earlier. Yes. Um, is the international trend line for birth up and what, or down? And what does that mean to our labor force? Yes. Yeah, so the trend line has been down and down for quite some time. In fact, it's been down for centuries, and then we had this blip that we call the baby boom globally, so back in the 1950s and so forth. So the general trend line, that's due for many, many reasons to include urbanization, et cetera. Uh, but more recently, the concern about the trend line falling, and the reason why I'm concerned about it, is you're getting to the threshold where the global population fertility rate um, may be approaching uh, non-replacement levels. Okay, so 
uh, economists and demographers typically identify that the, uh, that the lifetime births per woman globally needs to be about 2.1 lifetime births per woman uh, to be able to replace population and the death rates that occur naturally. And, uh, and so we're now approaching, I think it's on the order of 2.3, 2.4 and falling. And of course, in developed country, countries like much of Western Europe, uh, many Asian countries in the United States, you're actually below uh, that, that rate. So sub 2.0 lifetime births per woman. That 0.3 of a child is really hard to raise. By <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Some are get... never complete. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, okay. So let's go to China. Let's take a trip there. Yes. Um, most stunning chart in your presentation when you did this was China's China starts off. They've got one child uh, policy. They go to a two child policy, uh, policy. Actually, I think it's three children now, is it not? It is three children now. Yes. 2016 is the first year that the policy is now fully in effect. And there was enough notice that the birth rate should have gone up. Yep. 2017, it goes down from 2016. 2018, it goes down from 2017. 2019, it goes down yet again from the previous year. 2020, okay, well, we got a pandemic. We start to understand maybe why the 20 and 21 numbers going on, but it's like this. You can see it going down. Yes. They had the chance to have more children, but didn't. Now I'm aware that there's a lot of complex factors that could have played into it. Sure. But I want to understand, uh, what I really want to drive at here is what is the thinking here that allows people to think or believe that it is good to have more children? Yes. Well, so I think that the most stunning thing about what China did with their one child policy, you know, in addition to the the moral abhorrence of it is that it transformed a culture. Okay. So not just a culture temporarily, but we're talking since 1980. So you have this entire generation for whom a very vicious um, control of their reproductive rates um, resulted in individuals only having an abstract concept of what it means to have a brother, sister, aunt, uncle, nephew, niece, cousin, et cetera. So those are all abstract con- uh, concepts and not anything that, that uh, many, many, many Chinese have experienced in concrete reality. And so if you suddenly turn around, and by the way, then it creates all sorts of economic habits and, and, and so forth. And then if you suddenly try to flip the switch and say, hey, guess what? Brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, it's all good things. We want you to have more children. It's going to be very, very hard to persuade people who have known nothing but a single child. And so, you know, we find, by the way, this isn't a problem only with China. They use totalitarian methods to get there. Uh, But any culture that has tried to reverse fertility rates and increase them has found it very difficult to do so, at least through public policy attempts. But they did. You you alluded to this earlier in the broadcast. And I want to, this is where I really want to settle in on that point. Sure. You've got uh, socialism has to control resources because there's always going to be shortage of supply. The, 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 the Malthusian prediction actually works in a socialist system. It does actually happen, right? They do run out of resources. They run out of land. Sure. Out of, it, 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 what is it that did that? What, what, what did we lose that caused that to happen? Yeah, so ultimately you're suppressing the human spirit and human ingenuity and creativity. And so here you again, you have, and one of the things why I'm very bearish in the long run on China is because it, they think they've controlled mouths to feed but they've actually suppressed minds to create. And so in the oh, future- Oh, 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 you gotta say that one more time. That's so good. They, they think they've controlled mouths to feed, but instead they've suppressed minds to create. 
And so going into their future, they're going to find themselves up against a wall as they, as they need people to bring ideas to the marketplace and, and solve problems. And now you find that they're, they're going to be, uh, they're already, by the way, have passed peak labor force. Their labor force is falling. Their population is, is possibly still growing. If you, we're not, never quite sure with Chinese statistics. Uh, but they probably are close to reaching uh, you know, peak population as well. As their labor force declines, they're going to have all sorts of economic challenges. So uh, what, explain that, because uh, you covered this in the, converse, in the talk that you gave. You talked about the global labor force. There, yes. There's, um, there, there's a, a tension between how many people are actually working and how many are not. There's, you know, yes. we, we start off our life not producing very much. We just consume we finish our life doing more consumption than production. And okay. It may be in a near infinite amount different, right? So there has to be a certain labor force that's making that possible. So yes. talk, let's talk specifically, because I think China is the most stark example. What exactly are they looking at? And maybe even on the global scene, what are they look, what are we looking at? Yes, yes. So, so by the way, some of these things I'm going to share with you come from a great book uh, called The Great Demographic Reversal. Uh, co-authored Woodford, and I forgot the other author's name, but, but one of the things that they highlighted is that with China, you had this period of globalization where there was urbanization within China, there was an opening up of their markets by Deng Xiaoping, and then an opening up of it additionally to the global uh, marketplace, especially when they entered the World Trade Organization. So you had a period of time where you had this surge of labor into the labor force that then caused Low, low prices, because as you have a surge of labor, you end up having lower cost of labor or wages go down. You saw a lot of outsourcing, a lot of trade outsourced to, to China and production. And so this was a great windfall for the global economy as China's population entered into the global labor force and there was urbanization in, on the countryside. Well, now they've reached peak labor force. And they are. And, and the thing with, about population control, you can't suddenly turn that ship, right? I mean, the you've hit the iceberg and there's not much you can do about it. They've suppressed this uh, fertility rates for decades now, and they're not going to get a sudden return in the labor force. Well, that has global implications. And the global implication is, is as you have the workforce slow down and potentially contract, you have fewer producers, right? But you still have a number of people that still need to consume, right? And you were just referring to that. Early in our stage of life, we are consumers by nature. We're young children. We don't produce a whole lot. We, we eat and sleep and do our thing. And the same thing as you become old. You know, the very elderly tend to produce very little. They often retire. And next thing you know, they also are consuming and not producing. Well, if you have basically static consumption but falling production, one thing happens. Prices go up right? There's not enough supply to meet the same demand. And so not only is the population growth rate important, but the shape of the population by age group cohorts matters. This is what we refer to as the dependency ratio. How many people out there are in the productive economy, so to speak, relative to the people who still need to consume but aren't producing? And so, you know, I hate to reduce human beings to sort of an economic production consumption a narrative, but this is a, an economic reality that we are likely going to have to confront, and that's largely due to China's one-child policy. It's going to be tough to, to 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 pivot. And this has already been underway for a long time. I remember; I think the numbers adjusted itself a tiny bit, but I remember my daughter was born in 1996, and that same year, uh, the the Clinton administration, the, the government in power at the time, admitted that you know to keep me in benefits during my diaper years 
we were, she was going to be looking at an 81, 82% lifetime tax rate. And there's mm, just no way right. that that kind of thing is feasible. It just, it can't work. That's right. Yes, for sure. I mean, I think that, that that's where some developing or developed countries are focusing their attention. What is this going to do to social insur- insurance systems as you, as you have you know, the baby boomers retire and you have a, a, a relatively large number of retirees or dependents, right? And then a relatively smaller workforce. And what is the burden? And by the way, when that happens and that additional economic burden, as it were, is placed upon the producing and also the fertile generation, it deters people from having more children because they're focusing their attention on their parents, right? Who need their care rather than having another child and taking care of that child. So it's sort of a vicious cycle or has the potential to be. You uh, just real briefly on this, because we're getting uh, tight on time here, just real briefly. You covered at the end of the talk, we're going to come back and and talk about how important this issue is. We're going to give you a chance to close, but I want to just real quickly get in I want to talk about the economic benefit or the ability to pay for extra children. So yes. let's say that we're doing something to nudge up the birth rate. Uh, everybody's participating in that. Um, what is, I want to talk uh, kind of about the ex- existential burden of a parent. Yes. So I'm going to go full confession mode here and talk yeah. about the fact <laughs> that we, I made a decision to get in this to a specific line of work. I was sure. going to go change the world. And in so doing, uh, I had to go make tremendous sacrifices. I took mm-hmm. over an enterprise that was almost $200,000 in 90 days past due debt. Had my first week on the job, I had to let go four people. Uh, we had very little money in the bank. And oh, my second day on the job was 9-11. It was a real challenge to, to, to get it. But those were the, that was the way I created my opportunity, right? I took a, a real huge risk. But there was some, that was the years that we would have been finishing up. We might have had our fourth and fifth children. And we yes. wanted to. Yes. But we didn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I want, if you could, I'd, I'd like you to speak direct from the heart because I know you sure. have a passion or feeling about this. Yes. I want you to talk about why someone who might be in the very same position I was then right now, or might be coming up on that, might want to have one more child. Yes. Well, a couple of things, just full disclosure, I have five children. <laughs> so that's uh, above average, as you might say. And so, you know, those are discussions that, that uh, you know, couples need to be thinking through. And oftentimes they, they weave their, uh, their faith or their background into that decision. I think one of the things you first is orienting yourself to there's nothing like a human person. They're unique. They're unrepeatable. They're created in the image and likeness of God. That's my background. That's my perspective. And you find that that's not the same with anything else human beings bring into the world. So I love that smartphone that you showed. And it's, I could spend all day just kind of goofing around with a new iPad or something. And it's pretty fascinating. But you know what? It's going to eventually be uh, obsolete and it's going to go in the garbage can, right? But human beings are eternal. And in that sense, if you take a look at the uniqueness of an individual human being, if you can orient yourself to that kind of pro-life mindset, you'll find that there's nothing, nothing like it. Uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't challenges, including economic challenges. Um, I will say there is a book out there, and I'm forgetting the title, but Lawrence Kotlikoff is an, is an ec- economist at Boston University who's addressed all of these topics in terms of uh, uh, you know, retirement and social insurance systems. He also points out that second incomes actually aren't giving you lifetime benefits to the degree that people think. And that's the way the tax system is structured. So if you want to do a little research into why that's the case, he's brilliant in explaining why we actually don't get as much out of a second income as we often think. Please uh, repeat yeah. that economist name one more time. 
Yes, Lawrence Kotlikoff. He's at Boston University. He wrote a book a number of years ago, The Coming Generational Storm. I can't remember if that's the book where he addressed this topic, but it was pretty fascinating when he uh, went through social security taxes, how much people get in benefits, what the second income brings to the table in terms of lifetime benefits. It's actually much less than you think. So you might think that you have money on the table, but when you net it out over the course of a lifetime, boy, it's pretty small. So Let's close with Elon Musk. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he puts out a tweet last year and he says population collapse is potentially the greatest risk to the future of civilization. Uh, he talked about China specifically in his example, but he's suggesting he's making a very big claim. And I think big claims require big evidence. We've gone through an awful lot of it here, but the claim here is even bigger than the one we've been covering all along, which is that the decline in population is the greatest risk to the future of civilization. Do you agree with that? And, uh, and, and if so, why? Why is this really, why have we had this conversation for the last hour? So I would say that I agree with it as the number one concern. There are lots of concerns out there, but in terms of a long-run concern, population decline, if we get there, and I think we're headed in that direction, is very ominous. And I think one of the reasons why and why it doesn't appear as one of the top concerns of most people is that we underappreciate or take for granted what the human person brings to the table, right? I mentioned earlier the suppression of mind and creativity by the Chinese when they control their population. Well, we take innovation, technology, ingenuity, just the inherent goodness of other people, we take it for granted too often. And I think we're just now starting to see that, just even in terms of the, the struggle to find an adequate workforce to, to do jobs that we've ordinarily taken for granted, that they would be there and somebody would be there to do the job. Well. When you find out that that's a global problem, boy, you're going to have to innovate really quickly to overcome that challenge. So I do think that Elon Musk is onto something, though, of course, he's very provocative. <laughs> Steve, whatever they're paying you over the Academic Institute, it's not enough because I know you're responsible for <laughs> operations over there, but you are a fantastic guest. I got to give you credit for uh, really hitting the marks today. Thank you. Oh, and, gosh. Well, thanks so much. And, and I, I just want to say, folks, we're, we're here talking about the inherent dignity of a person. I mean, in every one of these conversations that we're having, we're asking you to look at the person. Maybe they're hurting, maybe they're wounded. That's what we've talked about. Maybe they've got an argument you don't understand. Steel man, that argument. It's always going beyond tolerance. It's always going beyond forgiveness into that realm of grace where you're granting favor to other people. And here, the, the, it's, we get right down to the nub of it. Each life that comes our way, each life that comes into the planet, has something unique and special to offer. They've been created unique and special to bring us all greater wealth, greater benefit, greater relational connection and assurance and hope. Every person has that potential and is made that way. And Bill, I, you know, it's good when you can take science and you can bring it together to begin to make that point. It really, this goes to my heart. Um, as we talked about last time, you know, I, I lost my third kid to a miscarriage. And the five kids that we do have between my wife and I are remarkable people. Yeah, they're learning to, to what it takes. They're, they're citizens of this new world that we're in. I have so much hope for that. And the fact that we need more kids like that is just incredible to me, especially when you can actually put science on it and measure it and say, Here, well, here's where we're going to go unless we have those amazing kids. You know what I'm saying, Joe? Yeah, 100%. And Steve, professor... <laughs> 
I want to sign up for your class, you know? Oh, I, thank you. <laughs> there's, there's so much in this and, and to be able to unpack it in a way that reaches home, Jim, you, you got it to my heart. So everything, if you're listening to this, all the data, all the analysis, all the insight that Steve's brought us today uh, does actually come home. Take it from me. If it's able to reach my heart and I'm a tough one to get to, it'll touch yours as well. It'll touch yours as well. Gentlemen, what a fantastic conversation and what an amazing uh, teaser, you know, for the kinds of conversations that we need to have more of in our world, right? At least in my opinion, <laughs> instead of that trench warfare thing, this kind of skillful dialogue on topics like overpopulation, underpopulation, what's, what's happening in our world globally. Yes, globalists. It's more than that. It's a way to actually advance positive collaborative ideas for change. Steve, as you pointed out, uh, human beings are the ultimate resource. And that really speaks to me. Every one of us has a unique value to bring to this world, right? And it's vital that all of us accept it because sometimes it's hard to do that and then walk our best walk in ways that heal. So the question for all of us to answer right now is really quite simple. How are we going to do that? Thank you to everyone, everyone here for your kind attention. Subscribe, ring the bell so you're aware of our live episodes. And thank you especially for being curious and open to these new ideas that may come your way. And thank you especially, Steve, for spending some time with us here on Grace Archie. Jim and I wish you and the Acton Institute success and honor. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to join you. Until next time, everyone, many blessings, grace and peace. Aho. Shalom. <laughs>